0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Welcome to a special crossover episode between The Truth of the Matter and the CSIS Coronavirus Crisis Update podcast, which I co-host with my colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison. On Monday of this week, Steve and I spoke with Carrie Funk, who's Director of Science and Society Research at the Pew Research Center, where she leads the center's efforts to understand the implications of science for society. We discussed the polarization and public opinion surrounding COVID and much more. Here's our conversation. Take a listen.
1: Andrew and I are thrilled today to be joined by Carrie Funk. Carrie leads the strategic planning and execution of research on science and society, at the Pew Research Center. Welcome, Carrie.
2: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
0: Carrie, It's great to have you here because you're literally the hottest pulse around because everybody wants to know what you think about health and climate change. So like you're the go-to on this stuff.
2: Oh, fantastic. And we certainly like paying attention to where the public is on the kind of the the key issues and trends shaping America today
1: before we get started, I want to thank you. Carrie participated. Over the last year, more than a year, a year and a half, in the CSIS Task Force on Vaccine Confidence and Misinformation, you've been very generous to us. I just want to thank you for that. That task force is focused on the domestic environment here in the United States. It's a it's a departure for us here at CSIS. We're mostly outward looking at international affairs, international security, and these phenomena. But that's been a really rich effort, and thanks to your input, Carrie, and at many different points, you've been very generous with us. So thanks for coming with us to be here today. Let's start with, with your personal story. Tell us how you got to where you are today at Pew, looking at this intersection science society across a bunch of different areas, public health, climate, GM food. Tell us a bit. How did you wind up there and what is it that you do?
2: It's a harder question to answer than you'd think, but yes, I'm interested in what people think about all kinds of social and political issues, and I kind of wound my way around to specializing in what they think about science and science-related issues. I think what I like about it is science is so broad, it has so many implications for society that it allows me to have that breadth.
0: But now you're you're in a position where like everybody has their own version of science, and you're trying to set the record as straight as possible to say, here's what the facts are. Does it make your job even harder given the polarization we're facing over science?
2: It's a kind of a yes and no answer in that my job is to understand where people are as they think about science. And as you're pointing out, you know, one of the things that has changed is that we are seeing more of a political lens come into science. Up to now, it hasn't dominated all of science issues. So we certainly we're going to talk more about the ways in which politics comes into play as people think about COVID-19. Obviously, we've seen decades of a strong political lens on how people think about climate issues, energy issues, but other kinds of issues, developments in biotech, for example, gene editing, CRISPR technology, those things don't really evoke a strong political lens. They might evoke a religious lens or a value-based lens, and there's lots of issues in food science that really people feel strongly about, but they don't connect with either politics or religion.
1: Kerry, you've argued that public trust among Americans has remained pretty durable and strong across time. I mean, trust in science, and the, as you point out, it varies by specific sector or topic. But you you refer to it as a soft positive. In other words, we need to look by sector and topic in moment in time there 's some variation, but that most Americans, their trust and confidence has remained pretty durable what i 'd like to explore with you is how the pandemic and the politics surrounding it and, that, and those politics have become pretty divisive and pretty toxic how that 's changed in your view, the relationship between science and society. let me explain just for a minute what I mean I mean this is a remarkably complicated high paced and very contested opinion terrain it 's an unprecedented era we've seen these Stunning scientific advances in the rapid development of the vaccines and science and technology keep getting heralded as, look, these have come forward in this moment in time to provide us with the tools to manage this threat rapidly. And they're remarkable tools. We've also seen almost every dimension of the response to COVID-19 deeply politicized along very partisan lines. And we've seen sustained assaults upon local, state, and national public health officials, individuals like Tony Fauci, institutions. We're seeing a collapse of our public health workforce across America under that siege. We've seen the spread in social media, elsewhere, disinformation, misinformation, much of it stoked and encouraged by former President Trump, other elected officials, cable news, social media. There's a whole machinery out there that's pushing this in a way that's quite remarkable. And then we've seen in the last year, President Biden trying to roll some of this process back right? with a concerted effort to counter anti-science sentiment, restore some confidence in our science institutions, and try and bring the temperature down. It may be less rhetorical trying to speak in in terms that will connect across the population and not be seen as just appealing to one partisan base of support and the like. So that's a very long-winded way of getting to the question to you, which is, you're looking at all of these things you're tracking them very closely you're trying to unpack them how do you make sense of where we now stand like what's the what's the big picture as in when we think about how society and and its views of science at this two year mark into a pandemic that ain't over <laughs> yeah there's a lot
2: packed into that so let's let's i want to start actually with information and just the the rapid flow of information, and also paying attention to the fact that science, the research and development process, what public health officials do, all of that was in a public spotlight to a degree that is not typical, certainly not something we've seen in the past decade. So the public had a front seat view of science, and many in the scientific community thought that would be all good. I think it's probably more complicated than that. You also have to recognize that it's been a very difficult thing to make sense of, partly because, you know, we rapidly learned about a new disease and we had kind of shifting guidance on what to do about it, how to control it. So we asked the public what they think about the public health guidelines changing over time, for example, just to kind of pull out a concrete way to think about it. And, you know, a majority of Americans, I think around six and ten, Said it was understandable because science is always changing, science is iterative, it's that kind of sentiment. About half said it was confusing. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of those same people are saying it's understandable, but it's also confusing. And another, I think about half to about six in ten, also said something more negative. Either it made them think that public health officials were hiding something or it just made them less confident in the information. So I want to just recognize it's been a challenging information environment. And on the public side of things, it can be confusing.
0: Let me ask you this, um, Carrie. We've seen almost everything involving this pandemic become politicized. And it's like Republicans have one way of dealing with the pandemic and Democrats have another way of dealing with the pandemic. Now, we're coming up against an argument about boosters. Key officials like Tony Fauci have said boosters are not a luxury, they're a necessity to dealing with this pandemic. Have you seen the issue of boosters start to become polarized in your polling? You know,
2: one of the things that I think is... Interesting about what's going on now is there is a polarization. It's not 100% along political lines. It you know correlates with politics, but it's really along the lines of whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated. And there are plenty of Republicans who have been vaccinated, so it's not it's not a pure um, Democrat Republican kind of thing. Um, But those two groups see the world very differently as well, right? So people have been vaccinated see the coronavirus vaccines as safe and as the best way to protect. American's health. People who've not been vaccinated tend to say there's too much pressure to get vaccinated. They tend to be more concerned about safety, more concerned about kind of the transparency of information. And again, about half or more of both groups say it's a little confusing to make sense of all this information. So I want to just keep that in mind. I also want to just think back to where we were when the coronavirus outbreak first became widely known and we started to shut down a variety of public activities. We had a moment in the U.S. of kind of consensus where there was kind of a shared understanding that these measures were necessary.
1: This was like March, April. Around.
2: yep, exactly. It was about six weeks in or so, maybe two months in is where we really started to see that political divide. And that political divide has, you know, maintained over time. It got, if anything, it got a little bit bigger. So we had that moment of togetherness and then it quickly dissipated. What's been interesting about that, especially if you're a policy observer, is that, you know, we were always used to seeing political divides over what to do about common problems. But of course, the debate here has been to what extent is this a common problem? You know, the most striking findings that we saw is a kind of, oh, about a 40 percentage point gap between Democrats and Republicans over whether or not the coronavirus pandemic posed a major threat to public health. So that just is saying that at the fundamental level, people aren't agreeing on the degree to which this is a problem. You know, that drives a lot of um, thinking about what to do about it if you don't think it's a major threat.
0: So how do you look at issues as they emerge because you know there's something new with COVID every day, and we're learning, you know, more and more about the disease. We're learning more that it's, you know, it's clearly not it's going to be endemic. It's not going to just burn itself out entirely. We're just going to be with us for life. So this is something that you're studying. How do you address emerging issues and pull them?
2: It can be a broad question or a narrow question, certainly in terms of, of the coronavirus pandemic, you know you're asking people over time and you're looking for those changes over time. And so one of the things that, you know, we saw was a kind of uptick in people's attention to coronavirus news. And then now perhaps a, a falling off of that as people, some people are still paying close attention, but others are are kind of, they've had enough. So that's one way is you keep asking people, what do they think about it? And you're trying to track over time how that's shifting.
1: Can I ask you a question about Another dimension of our political life, which is, let's refer to it as the big lie and what we saw in January 6th in the aftermath, we now have a situation hearkening back to Andrew's point that we've been cleaved into two nations we have a large portion of our population under the umbrella of the Republican Party that is denying the validity of the elections against all facts, contrary to that and that's unprecedented in our political life does that influence does that bleed over into the field of of health and the way people think about covid-19 i mean this is maybe there isn't a connection but we now are in the midst of an active debate about the future of democracy in america and about what is a fact and what is not and and that's eroding trust and confidence in our electoral institutions Does that have a spillover impact in eroding trust and confidence in public health institutions? It's all complicated, but
2: it would start us off by just a little window into the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years. We saw that, you know, we do see a political divide among Americans, what they call a polarization, where the typical Democrat is further apart from the typical Republican on a host of issues, and we saw that grow over time. The thing that's important, I think, for me is to remember that it's a it's a wide range of social and political issues that we saw that division. What's concerning, I think, now is to see more coming into that fold of how we're seeing things as from a political lens. So that's what's been concerning, I think, for the scientific community more broadly about, you know, a kind of a political lens on what's happening with the coronavirus pandemic. I think we, we talk we're gonna talk, I think, hopefully more about trust, but that in particular, trust in medical scientists generally was an area where we saw no political division or very small political division. And since the outbreak, we now see a growing political difference in terms of how much Democrats and Republicans trust medical science. I think that's where the concern comes in is 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 everything is going to be under this umbrella of politics.
0: Is there a difference in how they're trusting medical science, like at the federal level versus the local level? I mean, most Americans do trust their own personal physicians. Are you seeing anything on that?
2: So I think we have, I would say most of the data we have is around scientists and medical scientists generally. So I don't know that we know about the local level, although certainly we've seen other public polls talk about trusted sources still includes your health care provider, your personal physician and that kind of thing. It's really more when they think about these people as a group and the kinds of – it's probably from the intersection of the kinds of advice that these people are giving about public policy.
0: But what you do see at the at the national level is that a belief in science is, seems to be waning. What are you seeing there? I mean we certainly you know, – it's been different – because of COVID, but w- w- do you see a, a, we keep hearing about a, a disbelief in science among our population.
2: You know, that's where I would say, I would say there's a more skeptical view of science or less trusting, right? So this is where, when I think about public trust in science, I think about three groups, really. So I think about the people we mentioned about the the kind of people with a, a tilt towards the positive, kind of this soft trust. So they they lean to trusting scientists as a group or medical scientists as a group. But that means they're more movable, right? They could go in either direction. There is a group with what I call the strong trust group. So they have a great deal of confidence in scientists to act in the best interests of the public. That group has actually grown over time and, and grown just a little bit more since the outbreak. The, the caveat there is that it hasn't grown evenly right across the population. So it has grown primarily among Democrats and not Republicans. And then we want to talk about the third group, which is a smaller group, but the people with really negative views of scientists who don't trust, don't think you can trust at all what scientists do. They're really part of the group of why we talk so much about how much does the public trust scientists. When we ask more specifically about people's confidence in the vaccine research and development process, that smaller group, you know, roughly two in 10 Americans at most, they're largely not vaccinated, right? Because there's a very strong correlation between your trust in the vaccine research development process and whether or not you yourself wanted to get vaccinated. So that's an example where we often look at that general case of how much does the, the American public trust scientists as a way to foreshadow... Whether or not there would be trust in specific
1: circumstances like this one. Would you agree that the pandemic, over the course of this last two years, almost two years, this pandemic has dramatically driven down trust and confidence among Republicans, in particular, to varying degrees. But as it as it relates to trust and confidence in CDC, FDA, NIH and that we face a new problem we had not faced before, which is if you happen to be the head of CDC or FDA, you've got to be thinking hard. How am I going to rebuild? We can't afford to have such a large portion of our population skeptical. They may be only modestly skeptical, but we can't afford to have that. Those institutions rely on having a bipartisan base and a wide base of public trust and confidence. And it seems to me in the last two years, the pandemic and the style of leadership and the direction our politics have gone have just driven a hole in that. Do you agree?
2: Certainly, we saw a more, um, we saw a downward drift in terms of public reactions to public health officials' performance during the crisis, including the CDC. And that downward drift is primarily among Republicans. It didn't reach bottom. I mean, it's not I think that might be um, going too far. I think one of the things that was interesting is we didn't see a downward drift in how people saw hospitals and medical centers performing. Yeah. So yeah. they saw medical professionals doing a good job throughout mm-hmm. um, and, and continue to say so in the most recent polling. So it again, that shows you that not everything is politicized. These things that are connecting perhaps with public policy are getting more of a political tint and... More direct health care is not.
1: But do you agree that we face a problem societally in terms of public trust and confidence in these major institutions that is of a scope or gravity that we did not face before coming out of this pandemic?
2: Yeah. The, I mean, I think the hard part is that public trust in government and other institutions had been on the decline for some time. Yeah. And that had been a bipartisan growth in in yeah, ske- yeah. cynicism and skepticism. So that makes it, I think. So it's hard to say that it's just the pandemic, right? Because you've mm-hmm. had these you've had these longer trends going and there's on a as well.
0: General skepticism that you've seen over time about just expertise in general.
2: Yes, and that is again, I think, of especial interest to people in the scientific community, being seen in particular for their expertise and some skepticism around that. You know, one of the things when we look at international public opinion that's striking is to see how that connects. We often talk about the political divide in the US and there's some, and they're often very wide. (laughs) But we also see political divisions in other countries, particularly in Western Europe, um, certainly in the UK, in Canada, in other places, Germany, Spain, Italy, I believe, you know, not everywhere. Um, but some, but a good number of places. So the U.S. is not alone in terms of that political division, and it often connects with a kind of rise in right-wing populism and a kind of anti-expert sentiment there. So you do see, you know, how much people trust scientists is connected with that as well.
0: So let me ask you this, Carrie. How do you decide what issues to poll when it comes to COVID and the pandemic? They're coming at you, you know, 10 a day, I'm sure, things to poll, but how do you decide what to poll for?
2: It's a hard question. What we are trying to do is to capture the major issues and trends shaping society and often changing society. So in terms of science, we're often looking at the ways in which science and technology are bringing innovations to society, but that's changing how people live. It's changing how we interact with each other. It can be changing how we interact with our global communities. So that's one piece that we do. And I think sometimes when it's not a direct change, it's usually because some issue is intersecting with broader social issues or ethical issues, policy issues. And that's,
1: that's where we focus. Can you tell us a bit about how you cope with this flourishing disinformation and misinformation as a pollster, as a survey expert? How do you have to alter your methodology? How do you have to alter the way you go about doing your work? in the midst of this phenomenon.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky to try to study the impact of misinformation. I mean, you know, we've seen a number of studies where what's most striking is how false statements can literally travel the globe within 48 hours, right? Mm -hmm. But asking people whether they've seen that statement is one thing we can take away, but knowing whether or not it impacted them is much harder to figure out. I'd say one thing to keep in mind is that people's attitudes and beliefs and perceptions, information is just one piece of that, right? So you're often also, those attitudes are usually shaped by your values, by emotions, by other kinds of things. So the kinds of misinformation that's most concerning are actually the the misstatements that are tapping into people's deeply held values and beliefs. So that's the thinking behind a false statement about the coronavirus vaccines connecting with people's fertility that has power because it's connecting with people's values and
0: emotions that way. Is there an interplay between climate and the pandemic, those issues as you see it?
2: I think, you know, as an observer, I think one of the most striking elements is just how it plays out on a global scale. And it shows us how that matters. Certainly one of the most striking elements of the pandemic was to see how different governments responded to the outbreak and how that mattered in terms of showing also different publics reacting. So I think there was no better kind of case study for understanding what a global pandemic is and and how what policy does matters for how people experience it. I think in terms of climate change, you're seeing the same thing as people are starting to realize that we're interconnected in a way that, that we didn't before. You know, 20 years ago, climate change was so abstract and so distant. And now we can't say that anymore. It's We're increasingly seeing climate-related weather events that are hurting communities in our backyards. We see it around the globe as well. So that's That's part of what you're seeing is that we're starting to hear more and more about the health impacts of climate change. I think we're going to continue to hear that. And it's a way in which people are going to see climate change in a more direct, personal
1: way. Well, we've all been really unsettled by this pandemic. And we're also increasingly unsettled by climate change because both and those twin threats are unfolding right in front of our eyes together. In real time. And it's stoking a lot of anxiety. They are interdependent in the sense that climate change has huge health consequences. Do they feed upon one another? Do they stoke anxiety and fear coming together in this way?
2: Well, they've been operating on different time frames, right? Certainly when the pandemic hit, you know, there was that sense of urgency. And climate change has been playing out over decades. So it's a very different kind of time frame that way. I think there was a lot of concern early on whether the focus on coronavirus would take away from the focus on climate change. And I think many of those fears didn't really play out, either from a public perspective or a policy perspective, you're seeing Um, there was
0: ongoing attention to both. Are we a turning point, though, on the pandemic? We're looking at a you know, somewhat of a a softening of polarization and and some optimism as more uh, U.S. adults get vaccinated, but there's still 60 million American adults who are eligible to be vaccinated who aren't. And what we're hearing from public officials is, you know, they're going to have a hard time this winter versus those of us who have the vaccines and have been boosted shouldn't have such a hard time. And we'll be able to get together with our families for Thanksgiving safely and for the holidays, so forth. Are you seeing you know, as more people get vaccinated, any kind of softening on the polarization issues around the vaccines?
2: You know, I think people are going to be voting with their feet about where they stand in terms of the risk to themselves and their families and society more generally. And so you are seeing people change their behaviors, right? And so that is, I think, it's happening now as we speak, and we're going to continue to see that. It may go up and down as people you know, as we do go through a flu season and so on, or people have new, or there's new variants and such, you know, things change. And that's what people will continue to react to those changes on the ground.
0: Yeah. Some Americans don't like mandates and they would prefer to make their own choices and they feel that it's overreached by the government. But Are you seeing evidence that there's some belief also by Americans that this is part of your social contract with society, that you do this vaccination because it's for the public good? Are you seeing anything like that?
2: That's always been one of the ongoing questions is to what extent do people see that? Is that part of their motivation for getting the vaccine? And obviously some people do, but others still see it as an individual choice and that's their primary factor, right? But people can see both and still say, well, on balance, I need to make a decision that's based on what's right for me. So I think that's just been part of the ongoing conversation. And that will, I think people continue to navigate that as they go through.
1: Andrew's point, I believe, is directed at the reality that a very high percentage of American adults are now vaccinated, which includes a lot of people of all sorts of different political persuasions who've bought in and are now buying in and getting boosters. Our kids are getting vaccinated. I think that's going to happen fairly well. I mean, and to be
0: sure, some of those adults have been mandated because of their jobs. Mandates are starting to work. They're
1: generating lots of resistance, but they're really helping bump the numbers up. We've got boosters coming in. We've got children getting vaccinated. We've antivirals on the horizon. Very, you know, The Pfizer numbers are extremely encouraging antivirals. So there's a... There's a reason to be optimistic. I mean, we're still at extraordinarily high infection rates. We're still seeing high mortality. But as we look ahead, there's a scenario looking out into late winter, early spring. It's a fairly optimistic scenario. And does that mean that we are seeing some softening towards people feeling more without, with less partisanship or politicization, beginning to think, my gosh, maybe we're going to turn the corner here and let's bring the temperature down a
2: little bit. Those are good questions. I think we need to kind of wait and see a little bit about that. I mean, part of what is happening is that those who are most fearful of getting the coronavirus are feeling more protected. So they are coming together. Whether both groups are moving toward each other or one group is kind of moving towards the other yeah. is is what's hard to disentangle there.
1: Let's talk about the international dimension. I mean, your work earlier suggested that the international dimension of the COVID response really hasn't been that big a focus or concern for most Americans. And that's, that's not surprising, right? I mean, we have a crisis right in front of us and people are focused on that. My question is, has that begun to change in 2021? You know, as we've seen in the press, a much more consistent discussion around the glaring gaps, low and middle income countries in access to vaccines, PPE, oxygen testing, the threat that the, there'll be uncontrolled transmission in low- and middle-income countries that'll generate more variants, that'll come back and, and undermine all the progress we've made here but also lead to huge levels of suffering and dislocation in those societies. Now we have President Biden step forward and you know, starting earlier this year and really s- stepped into a foreign policy role, speaking to the world and to Americans about what we want to do. We saw the G7, we saw it at the September 22nd summit that he formed. Secretary Blinken did a ministerial last week. Samantha Power is going to bring together development authorities before the end of the year. The president's going to come back in the first quarter with another summit. Are Americans paying attention to this? Are you seeing this reflected? Are you seeing in your polling higher interest and interest and attention to the international dimension?
2: yeah i mean it's hard to say we we've done a few things to try to tap into how much americans are thinking about these issues and you know what role they think the government should have in helping developing economies get access to vaccines i mean i think overall a majority say you know support the idea of the us helping in that way but as you say it's it's not the it's not the issue that is driving their everyday life so it's it tends to be a lower, of but lower we also salience.
1: Aren't seeing a negative, a pronounced negative reaction to the president leading. There was always a fear that I think within this White House, early on in particular, that if there was an over engagement internationally, it would draw criticism by saying, "Wait a second, you know, you can't take your eye off the ball here at home." So the argument had to be made to Americans: "Look, we gotta we gotta pay attention at home and abroad." It's in our national interest. I haven't seen a strong negative reaction against President Biden's leadership in this way. We actually we
2: did try to ask kind of about that issue about whether or not people saw a connection in their collective interests, but you know it's it's perhaps not as common among Americans generally. But there there was some resistance to the idea that you would give first to other countries that you need yeah. to take care of a problem that's here front and center. So as, as that is evolving, right, that gives more flexibility right. to turn attention to how we can help other people.
1: As we sit on higher and higher surpluses. Mm-hmm. And we're able to commission and persuade Pfizer to produce a billion doses at seven and a half bucks versus much higher prices.
0: Kerry, do we have any evidence of the impact of this massive loss, which has touched such a significant share of American families on American opinion? Like, do we have any real sense of that You mean the loss of 757,000 lives?
2: I think, you know, it's something that we need to keep looking at for sure. I think we all have that sense that the coronavirus outbreak has impacted all of us in a number of ways. And we're just starting to uncover what those ways are. Certainly for those families, they have to deal first with their loss and their grief. And, you know, then the question is, how many different kinds of impacts there are? Is that spreads across society in terms of that way.
0: It continues to be striking and staggering to me that, you know, after 9-11, when we were attacked and we lost, you know, 3,000, 4,000 lives, we all were really united. Here, we've had an attack of a disease, and that disease has taken 757,000 of us and counting, but we don't have that kind of unity.
2: Yeah, it's a very good contrast. It's a very different situation. I think as we were saying, I mean, it the first six weeks or so, we had more of a coming together. And then after that, we saw more of a political divide over how to deal with it. It's partly about the balancing of other considerations, right? It was the balancing of the economic turmoil with the public health costs that is un- that is underneath much of that division, right? And I think, and most people would agree, both are important. So that's where you're, you're ending up with this kind of ongoing division over how to proceed.
1: What are the dimensions of American opinion that we don't understand? That you, as you sit back as an expert, as one of our premier experts in American opinion as it relates to science across all these different categories, what do you say to yourself in, in terms of, gosh, we really don't know a whole lot about A, B, or C? What are those enigmas, those gaps?
2: Yeah, that's a, another good question. I think certainly in the in the beginning of the of the pandemic, one thing that we needed to really explore was where does people's reluctance to get vaccinated come from? I think one thing, you know, we know from the work of CSIS is, you know, Heidi Larson always points out that there are many different kinds of kind of reluctance to vaccines and so that was one of the first puzzles we had in terms of doing is it. like where is that coming from how can we un- better understand that and we did and we did see several different strains of concern some people were worried about the safety of the vaccine some people were worried about kind of vaccines generally the same people who don't normally get a p- flu shot or were less likely to get vaccinated those kinds of things were also going on so that's, that's one puzzle that we faced and tried to, to live to the challenge. I think the more general one that we've been talking about today is that, you know, there's so many public policy issues that connect with a kind of strong factual information base, but that when people are thinking about those issues, facts and information is just one piece of it, and it's, again, it's those values, their emotional reaction, their they're kind of broader perceptions that come into play, and so sometimes there's this disjuncture between how the experts think about these issues and how the public thinks about them.
0: Carrie, we like to always ask our guests what are their priorities for 2022, and and what do you see, if any, in terms of optimism? What are, do you have any optimism for our future?
2: Sure. I mean, I think number one priority is to keep tracking as we talked about what what are the impacts of covid-19 on american society and more broadly on global societies around the world i think another aspect that comes out of the of the coronavirus pandemic is that we kind of we all paid more attention to what have been really long standing health equities or health inequities in society again that's both in the us and i think around the world or in developed economies and so Pew Research Center is paying more attention to those as well. And we're trying to get a better handle on how, particularly how black and Hispanic communities are seeing the medical care system, how they're experiencing it, how that might tie into their levels of trust or mistrust in medical scientists, and how we can address that going forward.
1: So inequities will remain a top priority as you move forward into 2022. Are you optimistic that we're coming to terms with with inequities? We're making some progress?
2: I think there's an opportunity to be heard in a way that maybe wasn't there before. So that's where our research can come in handy is to try to bring those voices
0: to light. Carrie, thank you very much for being with us today. We'll continue to watch your polling. It's some of the most important stuff around and really helps us learn about Policy impacts here at our level. So, thank you so much.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Kerry. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit CSIS.org slash podcasts
1: to see our full catalog.